All right. Yeah, I really will not be offended if you fall asleep, just as long as you don't get offended if I fall asleep. Well, I'm preaching. Um, hopefully, hopefully you guys are doing well. Um, what did you guys do during free time? What, what, what were the options? Because I, I, I went up to the... Basketball? I did play basketball, and I regret it. Um, <laughs> because, uh, yeah, mentally, I think I'm still capable of playing basketball, but um, my, my body did not cooperate. And I was praying the entire time, God, give me my glorified body right now. <laughs> um, but hopefully you guys enjoyed your free time, whether it was uh, doing work. I heard some people brought schoolwork. Um, that's just, that blows my mind. Um, other people, I'm sure, maybe took a nap or played board games or just hung out. Um, hopefully it was a refreshing time to catch up with others or uh, spend some time alone in reflection. But uh, as Pastor Francis said, we are in session two. Session two, and um, our passage for, night, for tonight will be uh, Haggai 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead in preparation and turn in them to Haggai chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 9. But let me go ahead and pray for our time. I'll give you, I guess, 10 seconds to flip there or pull it up on your app. Um, But yeah, let's pray for our time, asking for the Lord's blessing and help. Let's pray. God, you're so kind to us to allow us to gather as your people before your word. And we pray for your help. We ask that you would impart grace so that you would illumine our minds, not only to understand this passage intellectually and grasp its concepts, but Lord, you would soften the heart, Father, to pierce us and leave us undone as we behold Christ, as we learn what it means to be fixated upon Him, how to have the right perspective in every season of life, that we might live for your kingdom and not our own. And so we ask that your Spirit would be here to convict and guide, to nourish our people, that they might be strengthened, mature in their faith, so as to honor you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we laid the groundwork for our short retreat. And we examine how much of our life is a clash of priorities. Whether we will live according to our own wisdom, our own wants, or according to God's wisdom, what God wants. In other words, Him and His kingdom. And such an attitude and outlook to life is meant to infiltrate everything. When we prioritize glorifying God and living for His kingdom, it impacts and shapes how we handle and use, as we saw, our time, our house, skills, experiences, relationships, and resources. But we know it can be a difficult thing to stay on course. There are a lot of things in life, in the world, that tempt us or even discourage us along the way. Sometimes we just want to call it quits. So what will enable us to stay on mission? What will keep us mindful of His kingdom? Well, by maintaining the proper perspective. We're better situated to prioritize God and His kingdom when certain things are always within our line of sight. 
when our gaze is resolutely fixed on Him. And Haggai 2 verses 1 to 9 teaches us about kingdom perspective. Kingdom perspective. Now the first perspective we're going to examine for kingdom people is to glance at the past. Glance at the past. Look at your Bibles in verse 1. Okay, I'm in the right book this time. Haggai 2 verse 1 reads this. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. And we'll stop there. Again, this is another verse that kind of uh, depicts to us the setting. And so four weeks have elapsed since the previous passage. Haggai again mentions the date. He includes this timestamp because the seventh month was a special month in the Hebrew calendar. It was a busy time. It was a festive time. You see, on the first day of the seventh month, the Jews would participate in the Feast of Trumpets, a time to commemorate the end of an agricultural year. And just 10 days later, there was another celebration, the Day of Atonement, the biggest Jewish holiday for them. And the high priest would enter the temple, pierce through the curtain into the Holy of Holies to make atonement on behalf of the nation. And following the Day of Atonement was one final festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles. But what was different about this celebration from the previous two was that it lasted for an entire week. So get that, from the 15th day all the way to the 21st day, they were celebrating. And maybe you're thinking, man, all these Israelites do is party. You know, I thought Chinese New Year's was crazy. They are putting my ancestors to shame. Now, the Feast of Tabernacle was important for two main reasons. First, the people built and lived in these makeshift huts to re-experience the exodus out of Egypt. In those 40 wandering years in the wilderness, they would recall that smack dab in the middle of their camp was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was kind of like this portable worship center, a prototype for the temple. And so you would have this big tent in the middle, surrounded by all these little tents that the people would be in. Kind of a cute picture. But such an arrangement would remind the people that during the Feast of Tabernacles, while these Jews dwelt in their straw tents, they reflected on how God had dwelt among them in His tent, in the tabernacle. Second, this holiday not only rehearsed God's presence, but His provision. His provision. You see, the Feast of Tabernacle was an opportunity to give thanks to God for the harvest. People would bring their crops and honor God for His faithfulness. They would say, look at the size of this pomegranate. Look at the size of this olive. Uh, They weren't actually this big, but you get the point. They were just praising God for the abundance of their harvest. Except on this year, on this particular occasion, there was a glaring problem. In the book of Haggai, the people had very little. Remember back in chapter 1. 
God punished the people for their covenant disobedience with a drought and famine. So this year, the people were convicted of their unfaithfulness every time they stared at their skimpy fields. They had few crops. This year, the Feast of Tabernacles was not a joyful occasion, but a sad one, a discouraging one. The people's morale is at an all-time low. They were tired from all these festivities, crestfallen by their, by their poverty. Excuse me. With this backdrop in mind, on the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, on the 20. Uh, the 20th day for uh, 21st day, God sends the prophet Haggai to speak to the people and deliver a second message. We resume in verse two. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So you have to put yourself in their shoes. They hear of plans to restore the temple. Everyone is pumped up to pitch in. But the days are long. The labor excruciating. The progress minimal. And then the Israelites pause from their discouraging efforts to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And the holiday sensitizes them to the surroundings. Here they are worshiping God in the midst of their rubble, among charred scraps that scream and testify of their defeat, their sin, their exile. Sure, they had laid down the foundation, but the temple was nowhere near complete. The Feast of Tabernacle only highlights this jarring contrast between Solomon's extravagant temple of old and this sorry excuse of a temple at their feet. In fact, Ezra 3, it's a parallel passage, you don't have to turn there, it notes two stark responses to the laying of the temple's foundation. Those who were young and present, they were singing, praising God for his faithfulness, raising a loud shout. But the older generation had a different reaction. They were just as boisterous, just as loud as their young counterpart, but in weeping. They were devastated. Why? Ezra 3 verse 12 describes the old people as those who had seen the first house. They were the OGs. They had marveled at the opulence and beauty of Solomon's temple. And this lump of rocks in front of them will just paled in comparison. Let me illustrate. I, I used to live in Arcadia. Okay, So Arcadia is probably the Asian promised land of milk tea and shalom baoth. And I won't lie, it's true. It was very nice. You know, you had so many Chinese eats and restaurants to choose from. And almost every place we went to became a new favorite. And in such an excellent food scene, you get spoiled. It was like you couldn't go wrong. But if we went to like this beloved restaurant, we never wanted to see two words. New management. New management. Because... We would be scared. It usually meant 
that these people messed with the tried and true menu or the perfect recipe. You know, Asians need to learn that if it isn't broken, don't fix it. But if you show up to these renovated spots, it's obvious who's a regular and who's not. Because the first timers don't know any better, right? They're just happy for this stale fried rice or, or boba milk tea topped to the sky with whipped cream and sprinkles. It's just nasty. If you like that, um, the Lord bless you. <laughs> but you get the idea. There's a similar confusion taking place in this narrative. The people are gathering around the temple and it is a ruckus. The commotion from the crowd is deafening, but there is a sharp divide. The young are celebrating because they don't know any better. The older are crying because they do. And Haggai, to his credit, is trying his best to manage the situation. He's doing some damage control by addressing the elephant in the room. Yes, this temple isn't what it used to be, but be strong and continue in the work. That's the challenge. The people could be discouraged by the little progress. They could see how much they still have to go and just resign. Or they could press on because God was with them in this endeavor. It boils down to this. Will you obey and work even when things aren't going according to your plans? According to your expectations, will you still trust God? Because isn't that when the rubber really meets the road? You don't need to exercise faith when it's all perfect and fine. It's when you're unsettled. And that's the question we face today. This is when your faith is challenged. When things aren't going the way you plan or expect. When what you envision for church community, school, your living situation, dating, they aren't panning out as you hope. And in those moments, just like these Jews, you are confronted with a choice. You can either be paralyzed by the lack of progress or you press on. And I think we can see this in our own lives. You know, because of your disappointment, some of you might pine for the past. You know, you miss the glory days when you were the star athlete or the popular valedictorian, um, if there's such a thing. Scratch that. But when you were the star athlete <laughs> or the prom queen, right? Now you're no longer basking in the spotlight. Or you miss the, the simpler days. When you were a kid, when you lived without a care in the world, everything was so easy. But now it's just constant anxiety over your grades or dealing with drama. Or you miss your youth group days, for those of you who grew up in the church. When it used to be that you had so much zeal for Christ. You were surrounded by friends just as devoted to the things of the Lord. But now you've heard they've forsaken the faith. And you're jaded. Uninspired. Life just isn't what you imagined. But the reason behind the discouragement is not unlike these people, especially this older generation in Haggai. The older generation, you see, made the mistake of playing the comparison game. Of course, of course they're going to be disappointed, demoralized if the benchmark is Solomon's temple. 
But listen, that was never what God commissioned them to do. He instructed his people to build his temple, not Solomon's. Their sight was set on the wrong thing, and it took the wind out of their sails. And we are just as prone to fall into the same kind of trap. We're discouraged because maybe college isn't what we pictured it to be. COVID has altered how we attend classes, plan our schedules, hang out with people. And truth be told, it has soured the experience. You think to yourself, I wanted to befriend unbelievers on campus to share the gospel. I wanted to meet up with others for accountability, attend a conference, serve at a homeless shelter. I wanted to dive into fellowship to learn from others. But COVID has changed that, has hampered that. And in your frustration, you cry out, why God? Why? This was the season where I was really going to make strides in my faith. And I think God would tell you, You know, I never intended for you to grow in your version of faith, but mine. Not by your plans, but by faith and obedience because he's faithful. Most of the time, comparison is only good for creating discontentment. But the opposite is true. Most of the time, the reverse is just as true. That when we look to God, when obedience to Him is the benchmark, then we are content in Christ. And contentment crushes any inclination to compare. So your past isn't pointless, but it's not the point of life either. Which leads us to the second perspective. From glance at the past to now engage the present. Engage the present. Verse 4 says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now don't miss that word in verse now be present now do you remember the basics when you were first learning how to drive you know you check your mirrors right you check your mirrors but you don't stare at them yes you need a glance once in a while but everyone knows if your eyes are constantly latched onto the rear view mirror you're going to end up in a car accident if that's how you drive please stay at home you know forever I will pay for all of your Ubers. Just let me your credit card. (laughs) Now, we all know the proper way to drive is by looking forward. That that should be your characteristical perspective. And, And notice Haggai does direct the people's attention to the past. He talks about the covenant God made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. But this past account is mentioned not so that the Israelites can reminisce about the good old days and squander their time getting all nostalgic. Haggai mentions their past to motivate them in the present. 
Remember when God led you out of Egypt? Remember when God led you through the wilderness? Remember when God brought you into the promised land? You move forward because he was with you. He was for you. And so Haggai is replaying the tape, recalling the past to get the people going presently. In fact, his exhortation is structured just like when God instructed Joshua and the people before they entered the promised land. You see the connection? That back then, the mission before the people was intimidating, right? Enter into the foreign territory, fight other nations, and trust that somehow, way, God is going to provide the victory. But what was God's promise to Joshua and the Israelites? Joshua 1.9, a very popular verse. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And here Haggai is echoing those very words. Be strong and courageous. Not by flexing your muscles, but flexing your faith. God is injecting steel into their backbones because He, He will be their backbone. The God that delivered his people from the Egyptians to bring them home is the God who delivers his people from Babylonian captivity to bring them home to build his temple. In fact, despite the shabby condition of his house, in verse 5, God pledges his spirit remains with the people. The verb for remains is the same verb often translated stand. Stand which captures the idea really well. That the Spirit stands with and for the people of God. This spatial imagery. The verb is also a participle. And what you need to know about that is that it just portrays the Spirit's presence as continual instead of temporary. That you don't have to worry about if He just disappears and vanishes. He is there. So yes, on the surface... The shape and state of the temple may be deflating. If you look at it, of course it's discouraging. But the people are to look at something much more stable and assuring than what their eyes can physically behold. What's to dominate their perspective is the God who remains and his kingdom which will stand. College students, why is it that you can be strong and courageous? Not because of you. Why can you navigate through another day regardless of your checkered past? Why can you embrace all the curveballs and difficulties of today and strive to live for him and his kingdom? Because the scriptures teach, as we saw this morning, he is with you. He's with you, Christian. That his spirit will remain with you. You don't have to fear. God's promise to you is God. Can it get any better than that? You know, our obedience to him doesn't guarantee a wealthy, successful life or that all of our wildest dreams will come to fruition. We aren't guaranteed our kingdom, even if sometimes we treat God like a vending machine. You know, follow these instructions and it should uh, produce an expected result. That you get what you want. And I think we can deceive ourselves into thinking, uh, God, if I obey, it's almost like we try to manipulate him. God, if I obey, will you heal my mom? Will my grades improve? Will this attraction end? Will I date? Will I get into grad school? 
Maybe, but I don't know. It's not promised. God doesn't promise those things to us. God promises, though, to be with us. You see, the real question then is if he's enough. And the great comfort of scripture is that the New Testament believers, like you and me, we have it better than the people of old. The spirit will not only be in your midst, he will reside in you. Because when Jesus comes, he declares that if we are in him, he will be in us. Let that sit upon your mind for a second. How will this be true? Then we ask. When Jesus resurrects and he ascends to the Father, he's no longer here. He's no longer physically among us. Well, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 and 17 says this. Jesus speaking, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, the physical temple is only a stepping stone. It foreshadows the spiritual one. Because listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you, this is the Apostle Paul. Or do you not know that your body, Christian, is a temple, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So here's the conclusion. Here's the application. So glorify God with your body. What an immense encouragement that no Christian lives in the present by himself. You are empowered by God for his work. Whether that means mustering up the boldness to share the gospel with a family member, gently admonishing someone for their sin, Applying for a summer internship so you can be light in darkness. Or studying the scriptures to deepen your affection for God. We engage the present with confidence because God is present. Jim Elliot said, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. We looked at the past, the present, so I'm sure you can guess the last perspective. Consider the past again. Just kidding. Just want to make sure you're, you're on top of things, you're awake. We're going to consider the future now. Consider the future. Verses 6 to 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Our passage pivots and telescopes us to the future. On the first read, we probably don't understand everything that's going on. But one thing is clear to us. What is happening is epic and unusual. Haggai refers to God in a unique and specific way. Three times in the remainder of our passage, God is called the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. It's a military title. It depicts God as mighty and strong, a conquering force, an unstoppable force. And this is what we find him 
doing? Right? He shakes the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. The objects we can't wrap our hands around, God takes hold of. Haggai uses a literary device called a merism. And that's just a fancy technical name. Uh, it's more sophisticated than it sounds. Or sorry, it's less sophisticated than it sounds. A merism just takes two objects at opposite ends of the spectrum to communicate totality, comprehensiveness, to represent everything in between. So in this case, he's talking about how God will shake the heavens and the earth and everything in between. The seas and the dry land and everything in between. Two merisms in one verse to paint how God's sovereign power is both incomparable and inescapable. When God shakes, nothing is unaffected. And get this, God will not only shake the elements, but the picture continues in verse 7 when he, God announces, I will shake all nations. Now this reminds me of the classic movie trope where someone showcases his superiority by asserting his will upon an opponent. And so what does he do? He picks up his adversary, turns him upside down, and shakes him until all the coins spill out of his pocket. This guy is unstoppable, irresistible. God will assert his will on all his opponents. He will turn them up, shake them empty until the treasures flood his temple. God will plunder the nations. And that's what exactly happens in history. After this temple is finished in its humble state, King Herod comes along some 1500, or 1500, 500 years later, and he upgrades everything. He, a Roman ruler, uses the wealth of the Roman Empire to expand the temple and adorn it. God turns the tide by orchestrating these events. Why? Because it all belongs to him in the first place. Verse 8 is emphatic, so there's no confusion. You could translate it woodenly. To me belong the silver. To me belong the gold. And this mighty declaration comes from the mouth of the mighty Lord of hosts. Can you declare it as well? Are you certain of this future? All things belong to God, so that my worth is not in what I own, but who owns me? Who can keep me for a lifetime? When you were in elementary school, you might have read about or seen a solar eclipse. Right? The sun, moon, and earth, they're perfectly aligned so that the moon sits in the middle of the other two. And because of this arrangement, the sun is eclipsed and everything goes dark. And sadly, this is a fitting illustration for our relationship to God and our possessions. We're not looking at Him and the future. And so the glory of God and living for His kingdom is eclipsed by something sitting in the middle. And what is it? Well, we are obsessed with so many fleeting earthly things that it blocks our view, vanquishing any consideration of what's to come. And because of this, life is dark. And most of the time, the object obfuscating our vision isn't anything fundamentally bad. In fact, most of the time, it's something beneficial or good. You know, friends, 
a new smartphone, sleep, a diploma, summer break, a nice meal. But as we saw this morning, good things become bad things when they displace the best thing, seeing God. We misuse binoculars, right? When we just cling and hold them close to our chest and scream, mine. They're used properly when we look through them to behold something better than just the binoculars themselves. You see, God's gifts are supposed to be binoculars for us. God's gifts are windows to see and worship Him. And yet we're such nearsighted people. We latch onto what's immediately before us as if it belongs to us, but therein lies our folly. When we're focused on our things, the future, the horizon gets blurred into oblivion. And God is raising our gaze so He comes into focus. And when He is the focal point, everything in front of us, in a sense, is blurred. And really, this is how the Christian sees everything in life. Blurry up front because ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter what we have. It matters whose we are and how we can use our possessions to lift our eyes and everyone else's to worship the one on the horizon, the coming King, the Lord of hosts. Watch how God transitions from possessions to the place of worship. Verse 9. The latter, so this future glory of this house, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The people are to be faithful in their toil, their labor, their work by considering the future. Continue, press on, despite how ghetto this temple might look. uh, That's in the Hebrew. uh, But be confident that God will bless your efforts towards a greater end, a latter glory. That things are not what they currently appear. Some take this prophecy to speak of how the temple is remodeled by King Herod. But we know from our history books that this is short-lived. Because Herod's temple, as grand and amazing as it is, it's decimated in AD 70. So the decadence doesn't last. But there's something else that does. After all, the crescendo isn't on the material splendor of his house, isn't on its physical appearance, but what is offered there. That in this place, I, God, will give peace. Do you understand what God is teaching his people? They're caught up in present possessions and appearances of prosperity. They're operating by their conception of glory and what it should look like. But God is redefining it. We think something is glorious by how much it sparkles and shines. We measure glory by a price tag. God measures glory by purpose. What's most glorious about God's house is not how big it is or whether it's made of the finest materials. What's most glorious about God's house is that it is His house, that He is there. Glory is not defined by glitz and glamour, but God. So Christian, do you know what makes your savings account, your Friday nights, your apartment, your intellect, your soft skills beautiful? They are most glorious when they glorify God. 
when you spend your money to help others cherish Christ, when your fellowship encourages love for Jesus, when you use your free nights to serve and disciple the youth, when your street smart and winsome personality are a platform to preach and herald the gospel, that's when they are glorious. When they tell of the gospel and the coming kingdom of God. When you consider the future as a Christian, you become an archer, aiming everything you have at your disposal towards that bullseye. Yes, the temple in front of the people may be a shell of King Solomon's. Yes, the temple in front of them can't compare to what it becomes even under King Herod. But listen, the same house was always intended for the same purpose, no matter what it's wrapped up in. It was the place where people went to meet with God, to receive peace, to be made whole, because the greatest fulfillment of this verse is in the future. The latter glory of this place is found in a person, Jesus Christ. He is where we go now to meet God. He is the one who offers the peace of God. And this is what the temple prepared the people for. This is why the people were commissioned to build it. The temple paves the way for our Lord and Savior. And we can see this at the end of the story in Revelation 21. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation.